Joe, I can't figure out what I'm going to do for New Year's Eve. Well, you could get super blood or shit face and then forget what happened, so it doesn't matter. I have the strangest feeling, now that you say that out loud... Yeah? ...that I've been down this path before. But do you have any proof? I mean, other than all those uh, lurid photos that I, we took of you last year. No, no. I don't... The, obviously, those were photoshopped. Well, I mean, do you know why you're not allowed at the, the uh, McDonald's playground anymore? Am I not? Yeah. That would explain a lot, actually. We've got a gallery online if you want to check it out. Yeah, I once again can't help but the default to think this whole thing seems like an elaborate conspiracy. If by conspiracy you, you mean uh, your uh, hedonistic tendencies, then yes. So what you're saying is that I may have actually drank so much last year that I forgot about everything. Well, you didn't completely drink. I mean, there were those vodka enemas, but we thought it was cute at the time. Mm, that would explain why I had trouble sitting down the next day. Hey, you live, you learn, and then you buy loves. Yeah, maybe I'll just watch movies at home this year. Yeah, do that. Uh, you like movies. Yeah, I better get a shit ton of beer, though. Yeah, and a shit ton of movies. And vodka enemas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've already got some in the back. Digital Noise, the last one of 2015. That's right. It's not going to be 2000 late. Oh, but that reference is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're uh, we're wrapping up the new year with a big stack of movies of just across the board, all sorts of different types of yep. stuff. We got thrills, chills, and spills. God, I wish they... I just finished watching. I marathoned through the entire most recent season of Doctor Who, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. now I want to talk about it, but I can't because it's not actually out yet. <laughs> God damn it, I want to talk about it, but we're not going to talk about it. Well, I mean, we could drop spoilers. But as Easter eggs. No, we won't do that. Is that not how audio we're podcasting not, works? We're not, we're not, we're oh, not okay. spoiling anything. Oh, Maybe yeah. little things, but not on Dr. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, yes, <laughs> thank you for listening to Digital Noise. We review all the best in Blu-rays and DVDs coming out uh, for home release. I'm joined by Joe. Hello. And uh, first off, just want to say... Please, if you're thinking about buying anything, you got those Amazon gift certificates uh, that you got for Christmas. If you're going to use them to buy anything on Amazon, start off by clicking on one of our links right here on the Digital Noise page. Uh, if you click on any of those images there that show that show on our page, not only the time codes or where you can listen separately to each particular review with the titles we, we release, but show, in fact, the, so you know what we're covering each week. Uh, if you click on those, it'll bring you to the page where you could buy that item. You don't necessarily have to buy that item. I mean, sure, that's great if you do. I'm sure the people who gave us these DVDs and Blu-rays for free would appreciate that They'd as well. They'd give you hugs. Yeah, they would give you virtual hugs anyway. No, I can't, we can't guarantee actual hugs. Well, some might be willing. They might. Some of the small, But no promises, guys. No, no promises. promises. It's the new directive of 20th Century Fox's <laughs> home marketing department. It's no promises. <laughs> uh, they're like, yeah, you know, since we don't have Star Wars anymore, we're just going to hug a lot of people <laughs> and cry on their shoulders. Um, <laughs> and then we'll cancel those hugs after the first season right <laughs> doesn't that seem like a fox move uh 
you click on those things, you buy anything starting from our links, we get a kickback. That makes a huge difference. So does, in fact, going to audible.com. There's a banner you'll see on our site. If you click on that banner, you go to Audible, sign up. You get a free audiobook right off the bat. And there's so many great things on Audible for you to listen to. Just just more stuff than you could listen to in your lifetime. Yeah, like radio dramas or somebody reading off their grocery list. I don't think that last one is on. What, radio dramas? No, the last one. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. fine. Well, I'll read it for you. Okay, go ahead. Um, you don't have any lists, though. That's true. I do it. I'm, I'm an improv shopper. Oh, nice. Yeah. I got, I got a whole troop. We get together. <laughs> Is it all short form, so it's ramen? <laughs> yeah. And then right when we're done, right at the checkout line, we do Michael Jackson's Thriller in, in tandem. Yeah. I mean... They kind of seem to mind, but they haven't thrown you out yet. No, not so far. In fact, they, they you know, they're always like you can hear a lot of whispering among the staff when I walk in the store. Yeah, about how good it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, one last thing: becoming a subscriber is the biggest thing you can do to help our site. You become a subscriber, you get to uh, listen to episodes of. The original gentleman coming out bi-weekly for the brown coat subscribers and above, and or uh, the uh, Breakfast Pub with all the n- the news about entertainment media that's coming out for red shirts and above. And I promise you, I know we've been saying this for a while, but there actually is new stuff coming out there on there soon. We're gonna have new things for subscribers on there. I'm working on it. There's a bit of a shakeup behind the scenes, as those of you who've seen Brian Salisbury's goodbye letter to the site. So everything's being restructured a little bit, and then there. There will be much more attention to detail there, I promise. And really, you guys are the ones, the subscribers, you more than anybody are the ones who are keeping this plausible to keep going. <laughs> and you're, I thank you. You're all menches. <laughs> you're, all, you're all a bunch of good menches. <laughs> it's true. Uh, well, let's go right into our favorite part of the show, the bulk of the show that we like to call the reviews. I like that. That was a new one. Yeah. And we're going to start off with... One of the oddest films we've probably ever reviewed. Or one of the bestest films we've ever reviewed. <laughs> I mean, it's really going to depend on your viewpoint. Uh, this That's film, true. Tokyo Tribe played at Fantastic Fest to a mixture of great acclaim and total disdain. Yeah, I'm in the acclaim camp. Okay, so, I mean, I came kind of in the middle on this one. This is a, a, by one of my favorite Asian directors, uh, uh, Sion Sono, who is a madman, as far as I can tell. <laughs> like, everything you film he does is so different, but they're all unlike anything you've ever seen before. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, he, he's, he's not like Mike in, in that their styles no, aren't the same, not but at all. as far as like just being balls to the wall, let's take it to its logical end. They're both all about that. Or even illogical end. Um, so, some of his stuff is pretty dark. You get like uh, Cold Fish, which was amazing and so brutal. Uh, there's a, and now I'm blanking on it. There's the film that played this year at, at uh, Fantastic Fest Prime that is basically his version of a, a Christmas story, but mm-hmm. with giant kaiju at the end of it. Durr. <laughs> Logical and Christopher. And you have Tokyo Tribe, which played last year at Fantastic Fest, where I saw it, which is a. It's a gang like fight movie where everyone sings in hip hop. It's a, it's a rap opera. It's a rap opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hip hop opera. Yeah, except I hated the first hip hop opera, so I, that's why I didn't want to use that. Rap opera. Yeah, yeah, rap opera. Rap opera. It's, it's another district in Tokyo. Uh, so this is supposed to be near future where like a bunch, all the gangs have very distinctive, insane styles and themes to them, and they're very <laughs> colorful. Uh, 
And this film takes a while to get to the plot it because really there's does. so many characters to get to introduce you well, to. Well, man, you got to get all the setups. Yeah. Uh, and once they introduce all the gangs, which takes a good 30 minutes or so, I think, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the film, then it starts getting into the actual plot. Um which is basically just, you know, who's going to be the lead gang, whatever. It's not the most inventive plot of all time. Oh, it's not even consistent. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, this is batshit insane. It's based loosely on a popular manga of the same uh, title. But it's... You've just never seen anything like it? Yeah. It's- I, I don't know what to... I mean, like, this year, Chirac is the closest thing to it, probably. Mm-hmm. Which is certainly a lot of the dialogue is at least delivered in verse, if not sung. Just... You know, this way one is strictly all in verse and sung. I mean, they're just they're doing they're not talking to each other in verse. They're they're it's full on hip hop music video. Oh yeah, 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 thing. yeah. It's it's like a flow battle, and they're going back and forth. But uh, it's structured so you don't have all those little skippy parts where they just go uh uh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also extremely violent. Oh, and boobies galore. Oh yeah, this is like a hard R of a film. Um, it's just a mad, colorful thing that is kind of lightning in a bottle in a way. Well, part of part of the allure is that I loved the Dead or Alive series that, that Mike did and Ricky Which is Takeuchi. One of, few, one of the few series I've, by him I've still not seen. Oh, it's well, one's it's all right. Two is really great, and then three is is uh, oddly great. And this is kind of like a mixture of two and three in that it's futuristic, but this is not so futuristic. And there's lots of like ridiculous street fighting. Uh, and Takeuchi uh, as Lord Bupa. Uh, just takes the limiter off of being ridiculous. Uh, mm-hmm. And I really wish that there was a Sho Aikawa, uh, who was his counterpart in Dead or Alive, to kind of kind of balance him out. Um, but you, you, you do get to see him uh, fake jerk off with a lot of glass dildos. Yeah, so, that's, you know, that I know that was on your bucket. Yeah, list. so that <laughs> makes up for you it, really. dying for that to be included in a movie in your library. Honestly, this is one of those films that there's just nothing else like it out there, which you could say of every Sono film, mm-hmm. but and probably every Mike film for that matter. Yeah. Although Mike has a lot more imitators, I think he's a little easier to nail down for the for the at least the early part of his his like very uh, prolific period. Yeah, during the, his his like Yakuza period. Yeah. Then then Sono is where you literally have no idea what you're gonna get every time. It's just it's but it's gonna be mad. <laughs> And this is probably next to Why Don't You Go Play in Hell, uh, his most vibrant, fun movie. Oh, it's super fun. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, there's there's all these awful things happening, but yet it's still kind of lighthearted and campy. Now, the reason I fell in the middle on this one is because it is long. Oh, yes. Yes, it, it is. It is so long. And there was a point that I was like, okay... I get it. I'm kind of ready for this thing to wrap up now. <laughs> but if you're just suffused with joy, like clearly Joe was, yes. and certainly a lot of other people I knew were, was who saw it by this whole thing, you won't want it tanned. No. Mm, no, <laughs> I, I wanted to dive into the movie and, and start, uh, you know, rap fighting people. Yeah, it would be cool if life worked that way. Yeah. Uh, and this comes with like a booklet with it and some deleted scenes, uh, making a featurette uh, with a bunch of raw footage from shooting it, which is certainly something I would think would be one of the more interesting things about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like the set pieces and the production design on this thing are pretty fucking incredible. Yes. Yeah. No, it's very immersive and <laughs> yeah. colorful. Uh, so and cool fights even. 
Yep. Yeah. Once it gets into the fights, it takes a while. But once they do, they're like, oh, okay, that was a pretty good fight. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Tokyo Tribe, I think we both agree, is uh, something everyone should see at least once. Or twice. Uh, or and, four times. Well, I mean, that's the thing. If you love it, then you're going to probably keep coming back to it. That's if you right. don't, you'll still be glad you saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to learn all the songs. No, you, you're part no, you of won't. the weird cultural conversation. <laughs> uh, next up is the Criterion release of the week, which is Speedy from... Legend Harold Lloyd. Now, a lot of people don't even still don't even recognize the name Harold Lloyd. And this is his own fault, kind of. In his heyday uh, in the 20s, he was right up there with Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. It's like the, you know, I mean, they were the three greats and everybody knew it. They were what, you know, he was a household name. The problem is, is that when it started getting to the, like, the period of like television and re-release stuff. He wanted a lot more money than anybody was willing to pay <laughs> for re-releasing this stuff. And consequently his films just kind of disappeared. Uh, in fact, his name kind of just disappeared. Except for until I made the, the, the connection of dumb and dumber. Wh- what do you mean? Harry and Lloyd. Oh, uh, was that supposed to be a direct? I think, it, I think and, so. <laughs> I, I'm sad for you that that's how that connection <laughs> happened. But uh, regardless his stuff was finally discovered again, like sort of rebirthed about, I would say about 10 or 15 years ago, where it was like, uh, I can't remember what the film festival was. It was a pretty big film festival where uh, they had a whole bunch of his stuff playing and everyone was like, holy shit, how did we forget about this guy? He's amazing. Speedy is one of his later silent films. In fact, it was, uh, I believe it's his last silent film. It was 1928. He had uh, one last job. Uh, but it was nominated for the very short-lived Academy Award for Best Director of a Comedy. Still confused <laughs> why. I always thought the Golden Globes had a better idea of separating mm-hmm. comedy, musical, and drama. Yeah. Uh, especially now that the, the Academy Awards have like tw- up to 12 nominations. It's like, why not just split it up into two? They should. They should. But then you get, you know, like your, your Justin Bieber's in a movie, and then you just don't know. Honestly. Like, it's everything. I think the biggest thing has to do with the economics of broadcasting the actual Oscars. That's true. Because it's the already length damn long. of the thing. It's already damn long. Yeah, exactly. Um, but regardless, Harold Lloyd here plays the uh, the eponymous role uh, of Speedy, who is a uh, a really, let's see, nice guy who lives with his dad and his, it uh, like I can tell, lives with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, who can't keep a job because he's just too easily distracted by something that kind of, the film kind of loses track of early on. That is, he's obsessed with baseball, which is like a plot element early. <laughs> and then the film just abandons it later. Like, yeah, that does not. Yeah, we got other anymore. stuff to talk about. Uh, as it goes into the thing with his dad, who owns this, uh, like the last horse gr- horse drawn trolley in New York City, and the big money train people are trying to force him out by any means necessary. Yeah, big train. <laughs> and it ends up being a whole thing with him trying to keep his dad from getting fucked over, much less killed by these evil corporate types. I miss that though. In the old days, a corporation could just murder people uh, out of competition. Yeah, that never happens anymore. No. Wait, did you see the insider? <laughs> um. Babe Ruth has a role in this film, playing himself, uh, you know, which is, you know, I, like, kind of obvious in the context of the thing, because you're like, oh, okay, Speedy's obsessed with baseball and the New York Yankees, mm-hmm. and then gets a chance to have Babe Ruth in one of his short-lived jobs as a taxi cab driver. I will say, I you know, 
Lloyd, who is really well known for stunt work, doesn't do an awful lot of stunt no. work in this. Um, like the most fun sequence looks crazier than it is because it's just sped up film, which is a elaborate yeah. car chase stuff. Or the but the whole like the whole end set piece, which is with all these bad guys trying to chase him in the trolley car as he tries to get from one side of New York to the other, is a genuinely pretty impressive sequence of it stuff. It is. Like I, I, I'm definitely pro, uh, like a cinema pariah in that most silent films, I just don't give a shit. I, I really don't well, it's care. Not, it's not for everybody, and I, I agree. When I there was the longest time I couldn't care either, and lately it's become something I actually really enjoy and really get mm-hmm. into. I mean, it was really about rediscovering Keaton and Chaplin that made me go like Criterion. I got sent some of their best films. And yeah. Went, wow. This stuff well, is really good. Yeah. Like, uh, during, uh, cinema studies classes in college, you know, we, I could appreciate it, but I was like, this is just not for me. Yeah. No. And it's not going to be for everyone. I actually find it very funny. Uh, this is of course the Criterion edition, which comes with a brand new audio commentary with the director of repertory programming at New York Film Forum and the director of program production at Turner Classic Movies to talk about mainly the detail of New York, what it was like at this time and how it evolved. Because one of the interesting things about this film is really seeing old New York Mm -hmm. in great detail. It's kind of fascinating looking at it that way. Uh, there's a new documentary, uh, uh, which Talks about a lot of the memorable sequences, how they were shot. Uh, there's a new featurette about Babe Ruth's appearance in Speedy. There's some narrated stills of deleted scenes where they talk about what was going to happen in there. Uh, there's a, 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 a group of home movies of Harold Lloyd and his family that's narrated by his granddaughter, Suzanne Lloyd. Uh, there's a leaflet that comes with it with an essay called The Comic Figure of the Average Man. And the best thing on here, which I actually like better than the movie itself, was a new restored short called Bumping Into Broadway with Lloyd, which is apparently the only other uh, thing he filmed other than Speedy that was set in New York City, even though it was actually shot in L.A. <laughs> it's like um, day for night. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the first time he ever did his the same character with Speedy, which is sort of... Oh, okay. Like a they, continuation. The guy with the glasses, you know, his, his, his more memorable look. And it's, it's very Keystone Cops-ish. And mm-hmm. it's, and this is where you see him. Wow. He really was great at doing physical stunts. And I mean, there's a sequence where he's just running from like 30 cops inside of a gambling house and it's a riot. It's just <laughs> laugh out loud funny. Hence the whole thing's only like 25 minutes long, but I was like, okay, on the whole, this is actually better than Speedy is, but you know, Speedy is still pretty good. I definitely recommend it. Next up, going into television is the third, and sadly, it looks like for sure now final yeah, yeah. Uh, season of Hannibal. Um, Put a fork in it because it's delicious. Uh, you know, I was a big fan of this show right from the get go, and that's mm-hmm. partially because the director uh, or the showrunner Brian Fuller is just one of those guys who everything he touches is quite just that. It's delicious and memorable and imaginative and visually, you know, no, visually, striking. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like he did such shows as, which by the way, if you've never watched, even though they're unfinished, they're still totally worth your time. Wonderfalls, Dead Like Me, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's the one I'm missing? Pushing Daisies, all those just, just great shows that, you know, you're a little sad that they never really come to a real conclusion, but you'll never be sad that you watched what does exist. So you're calling him Mr. Finish Line. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's just one of those guys. His stuff doesn't fit the dominant paradigm of television at mm-hmm. all. 
and he has a devoted squadron of fans like me who watch anything he does. But starting to think that maybe it's time for him to move into movies because yeah. there's just the television landscape as as interesting as it is right now is still not completely prepared for his stuff because his stuff costs a lot of money to produce well, that and maybe give the dude an end date. <laughs> like, it's got to be done by this. Well, maybe point. the guy should just do miniseries. Yeah. You know, uh, Hannibal fortunately actually comes to more or less a real ending. Mm-hmm. I mean, you certainly could, could take it and go, I mean, there's even a little coda, like by the way, after the beginning of the credits. So keep watching it during the last episode that goes, Oh, the story continues, maybe. <laughs> Questions, marks. <laughs> because they really thought at this point, okay, there's at least a chance that we're going to be able to sell this to Amazon or Netflix, mm-hmm. which since has proved to be not the yeah, case. Wrong Z's. Uh, and continue the show. Everyone involved wants to continue the show. And you never know. Crackle or Hulu or somebody like that still could step up, but it's looking unlikely at this yeah. point. Um, but regardless, I think that uh, while I will say I think season three is the weakest of the three seasons... I don't think it's by any means a bad show. I think it's weak only because it felt like it was the first half of this is very drawn out mm-hmm. with not a lot actually going on as basically the revenge plot as uh, Will Graham played by Hugh Dancy is searching around uh, Europe for Hannibal Lecter, who's hiding out now with uh, Gillian Anderson and her, her character, which was his psychologist, yeah. who has been completely, basically brainwashed by Lecter <laughs> herself. And they're kind of hanging around Europe, killing and eating people every once in a while. Yeah, uh, like Nash. Doing their thing, you know. Uh, as, well, Lawrence Fishburne is over there looking for him. And then you've got the, uh, I mean, I'm blanking on the name of the new actor that took over the role, but the guy who is... Uh, uh, who who got his face ripped off and he eaten? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, um, what's his name? I'm blanking. Michael Pitt played him in the first one. Joe Anderson plays him now. Mason Verger, who now is basically from a hospital bed, hiring people to go there and try and get Hannibal for his own right. Yeah, you know, so he can bring him back and torture him to death for what he did to him. In the first half of this, it's beautiful, just like the rest of the show is. Mm-hmm. It's just the plot drags on just a bit too long. It does. It does. But about the halfway point, about episode six or so of the season, it gets back into gear and goes, okay, now stuff is going to start happening. <laughs> As they basically, everybody catches up with Hannibal at the same time. And from there on, I think it's one of the best sequences of the whole run of the show. Yeah, actually, they should, they should uh, maybe Bravo can do it, like catching up with Hannibal and <laughs> do it like, like a reality show style. <laughs> Previously on Hannibal. Uh, yeah, I, I I definitely think that if you dropped out, Hannibal's one of those shows that's better to watch in a sort of marathon, three yeah, or four episodes Yeah, that, at would, a time. that way you, you can keep the, the momentum going. Yeah, and get the, the, the whole atmosphericness of it is something that's kind of jarring coming from something else. It's yeah. got a very different pace from other television, uh, but it's unquestionably gorgeous. It's like, I always think it's as if Jess Franco, the horror director, was smarter had access to better equipment and money, <laughs> he would have made something like Hannibal. It, it's just, it's art horror for sure. And not everybody's cup of tea. Like people yeah. who complain that uh, nobody got killed for three weeks on The Walking Dead, this ain't your show. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, this is like, this is a pensive, thoughtful, intellectual horror show. But the most brutally violent thing on television. Oh, absolutely. And it makes <laughs> makes you wonder why Lawrence Fishburne's character never said, you know what? Fuck this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fuck it. Fuck it. Uh, just so glad that they at least got to go to the third season because for a while, <clears throat> it looked like even that wasn't going to happen. 
But yeah, I mean, be glad at least this one, they did have enough time ahead of time to know that, okay, we're going to have to have some, we have to bring it to some kind of ending. And I was more than not satisfied with what they came up with. Mm -hmm. You know, you're like, you could, you could follow it up in a lot of different ways if you wanted to, but it still feels like an ending. Yeah. And you know, this is a series that gave us the Mads Mikkelsen. So you can't be mad at it no matter what. It's now my official favorite actor to play Hannibal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think fantastic in retrospect, looking back at Anthony Hopkins performance, which definitely is so powerful in silence of the lambs, which has a lot to do with how great that script was. Mm -hmm. Seems so strangely foppish. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now you watch Mick Mickelson, you're like, oh, given the actual what we know about this character, <clears throat> Hopkins kind of plays him like a weird clown. Yeah, yeah, almost like a cartoon character. <laughs> yeah, and Mickelson, you're like, oh, this actually makes a lot more sense considering. I, what I we might know be about eaten by that actor. dude. You know, I'd be okay with it. Uh, he's strangely mesmerizing. Yes. There's a lot of extra features on here, including a gag reel, which was difficult for me to watch because it's there's not a lot of humor in Hannibal. <laughs> and you're like, it's weird to see Hannibal Lecter break and laugh. Yeah, and, and then they do the sound effects of boing, boing. Uh, and there's some webisodes with Scott and Thompson, who plays one of the CSI guys here, who does sort of a post-mortem on the episode, and a, a variety of other little featurettes. Ultimately, Hannibal Season 3... I think well worth your time. Uh, next up is The Girl King. Uh, this is a recent drama uh, that is uh, about, uh, what's her name? Christina the, I can't remember. the, the, the Queens of Sweden. Queen Christina the second or something like that of Sweden. Some. Um, this actress, Malin Buska, Mal- Malin Buska, that's a name if I ever Buska Malin Buska. Uh, um, that's her rap is, name. Actually, I thought it was really good in, <laughs> in the lead as this role. And the idea is like she's, it's a Lutheran like country in the middle of when uh, Protestants and, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, it's a Pro- Protestant country that follows Martin Luther, of course. Uh, Lutherans came later, which is like the liberal version of Protestantism. <laughs> Uh, Which, by, by the account of this movie, they needed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, Protestants were basically like the, you know, at that point made Catholics look... Catholics like, without the fun. I mean, Catholics <laughs> look like hippies. <laughs> they were fighting Catholicism all over Europe. Sweden was on the side of Protestantism. Her father had died. Her mother had gone mad. She was made a girl a girl queen or girl king, if you will. Uh, and she had been raised sort of knowing that there was no male heir. She'd been kind of raised like a dude, mm-hmm. how to do all the dude stuff. Yeah, dude fight. <laughs> and uh, when she came of age and became queen, she uh, had an eye for the ladies, <laughs> yep. Uh, she really, this woman who came in who was like the, the wife of, or the, the, the fiance of, I'm not even sure, some, some dude on her cousin court. Yeah. or something like that, uh, played by Sarah Gadden, uh, who's absolutely gorgeous, by the way. They definitely have an eye for each other and start kind of hooking up. Meanwhile, uh, Christina is, Sort of through the back door. That's not a sex thing. Uh, uh, yeah, that's not a fisting joke. Yes. Uh, she is introducing more liberal ideas into the country, being a big fan of Descartes and his whole, like, a uh, you know, how maybe reason and education is a good thing, <laughs> <laughs> which the, the Protestants were not too into at that point. And being a sensate. Yes. What? Well, wait. No. What? Did uh, I miss something? <laughs> well, well, like like uh, being able to to take advantage of uh, the the sensations in life, and yeah. and, and, and I thought you meant yeah. like the show. No, no, no sense eight. Yeah, no. yeah. I was no. like, wait, what? 
<laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, she was one of the eight. Yeah, there was like, it's a whole thing you never realized about history. <laughs> mysteries, mysteries. Uh, you know, I mean, ultimately, this is a dry English drama. Yeah. Um, she's certainly an interesting figure in history. There's no denying that. But this film needed a little more, bit more pizzazz than it had. Yeah, it to- had to give me more of a reason to care. Yeah. I mean, I think intellectually I cared, but emotionally about these characters, I didn't. And there was almost no real spark between the two female leads. No, I was going to say, because it seemed like she was really into uh, What's-Her-Face, Countess Girl. But Countess Girl was just kind of like, yeah, you're cool and all, but I feel like I'm going to go to jail if I don't sleep with you. Yeah. Yeah, no, you never really felt like she was fighting anything on her side. No. You know, she's like, okay, I guess this is mildly, it felt mildly rapey. Yeah, I could sleep with the queen, or I could have a baby. I don't know, whichever. Something. It don't matter. Um, yeah, but the Girl King is like, like I, said, I mean, it's being put out by Wolf Video, which is a video line that exclusively puts out uh, LGBT-type stuff. And this is ultimately much more light on that aspect of it yeah. than a lot of that their stuff they put out is. I was kind of surprised that they sold it to them for distribution because the lesbian part of the story is really a kind of a minor part of the story, mm-hmm. it seemed like. It's really much more about how everyone was really resisting this new era of rationalism she was trying to introduce to the Swedish court, which, of course, eventually did, in fact, take off because look at Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, the Girl King, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, next up is one of the more unusual films we've ever reviewed, and I'm saying that even in lieu of us having just reviewed Tokyo Tribe. That's true. Uh, and this is called Thundercrack with an exclamation mark. <sighs> this is a uh, tiny little black comedy pornographic horror film that was so obscure but so legendary that a lot of people weren't sure if it was just an urban legend or not for a long no, time okay. that it actually existed. Like I was reading up on this. It was like, yeah, it was just, it had disappeared so thoroughly that people would hear about screenings and how insane this movie was and go, yeah, but no one seems to be able to like find it. <laughs> so it sounds like somebody was just high and <laughs> you know, this didn't actually happen. But now lo and behold, uh, Synapse Films has gotten a hold of this thing, has fixed it up uh, as much as you can for Patch, 16 patched up the walls. Uh, yeah, but you never see the, you never feel like there's scenes missing or anything mm-hmm. like that here. Uh, <laughs> although there's an inexplicably long intermission in the middle of this thing, which which you gotta keep. <laughs> which makes it, why does a porn film need an intermission? I I don't know. It's, uh, it's like two hours and 36 minutes long with like a 20 minute intermission in the middle it's of it. for cleanup. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, it's get water <laughs> but it's like the old dark house type mystery although clearly just filmed in someone's tiny apartment mm-hmm. <laughs> but with inter- interrupted with hardcore sex the idea is uh, there's a variety of people during a really bad thunderstorm have to take shelter in this house where this uh crazy woman lives in uh crazy widow who welcomes the ball in, but she's got this whole porn room filled with like dildos and weird, weird. So she's got art a, porn a room is what you're saying. A room. Yeah. Just yeah. any given room of a house, you know, you know how that goes and everybody ends up sleeping with everybody and it brings in this whole, like everybody's got a secret. And the weirdest part 
I can't believe I lasted through this whole thing because <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's not like a lot of porn films where you're like, it's dominated by the porn scenes are, I mean, they're triple X, but they're very mm-hmm. short. And then it gets back to the plot such as it is, yeah. uh, where they, this guy who we see right at the beginning, who's driving like a circus truck with a bunch of animals in the storm, that truck crashes. And so at the end he shows up like the last 30 minutes and they're like, Oh, the animals are everywhere. They're out there. You can't go out there. There's wild circus animals. And like, oh, the only one you want to watch out for the for is the female gorilla. It's like, why? It's like, because she is really horny for dudes, for like like human dudes. Yes. And she'll rape them and kill them. <laughs> that's, that's her deal. So there's sex scenes between a human and an ape, which, mind you, is just somebody in an ape costume. Which is, you know, it's hot in its way. It, I, hmm. <laughs> I don't know if um, those words... There are words for what you're trying to get across. I'm not sure that those were it. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm sure there are sites where you got to pay a lot of money to get into them. Well, you can see like a, a clearly just a hand in, of a gorilla costume jerking off a guy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you're like, okay, that was the thing I can mark. Well, off it makes my you wonder: list. was that a dude hand or a lady hand in it? And does it matter? <laughs> and then the whole thing with like where it looks like the woman who owns the house, like she is slowly eating the parts of her dead husband that she keeps pickled in the basement. Hey, you just have, you know, I, don't. you got to recharge. I mean, this whole thing, it makes no sense, but you can see why it's a cult classic mm-hmm. because the dialogue is almost like they tried to write it like something out of a Thornton Wilder novel, you know, yeah. or, or play. It's just like so exaggerated and it's, it's funny. This is one of these things. If you saw this in a theater with a group of people, you'd be laughing your ass off. Right. Uh, but I don't know about home viewing. So no, I was going to say this is not for private not, <laughs> consumption. No, maybe not as much. Uh, they certainly put together one hell of a package to go with this thing, though. I see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is the 40th anniversary collector's edition because this came out in what, like '76, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, it looks pretty, like I said, they'd spent a lot of money on the cleanup, which looks good for 16 millimeter from there. Uh, this is the full 160 minute cut. I'm sorry. The intermission is 10 minutes, not 20, but it felt like 20. Uh, and, uh, you get a feature document, feature length documentary called it came from Kuchar, which is the story of the guys who made this, the Kuchar brothers, which is they're total freaks. First off, they've been spending their whole career since then making films like this. <laughs> Just like really, not necessarily porn all the time, but like, l- let me put it this way. They were the biggest influence on John Waters. That This is where John Waters came from. And the early John Waters. Yeah. The weird Pink Flamingos John yeah, Waters. Yeah, like eating dog shit. Yeah. So, so get, that should give you some idea. But also like Adam McGoyan, Guy Madden, and Wayne Wang uh, all all go in and say, yeah, yeah, the Thundercrack was a big influence on us. Like, wow, that's – I wouldn't have expected that. This thing also comes with a second DVD with extras that were compiled for apparently a 2010 release. Uh, which include interviews with the director, the composer, uh, the actress, uh, the uh, actress Marion Eaton, which who I believe was the one who played the sort of woman who already lived in the house, um, and then stuff like uh, some of the uh, uh, 
uh, what do you call it? Auditions, which are porn auditions. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we'll have sex. Yep. You're like, okay, so if you want more sex of these people who admittedly are not the most wildly attractive people in the world <laughs> having sex. That's a kind way of saying it. And then there's uh, five short erotic films on here, which are all pretty much gay themed. I mean, the thing about this movie is there is a gay sequence in it, and there's a lot of gay overtones at points, but 99% of the sex is heterosexual in it. Yeah, it's there's still one slamming. gay scene and gay sex scene in here. So if, you're, if you get quirky about that sort of thing, then just be warned. <laughs> that is going to happen in the in the last third of this film just yell no home or whatever your safe word is <laughs> yeah. uh you know i mean this is it's a moment in time yeah yeah i don't know it's for some people ain't really for me <laughs> but it's for some people all right well let's keep going with uh mission impossible rogue nation toby toby you gotta do the thing i can't do the thing Ugh. And then they do the thing. They do the thing. Because yeah. otherwise the movie would end and everybody would die. Yeah. And yeah. it'd be called Mission, You're an Asshole. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I actually was just kind of mixed on this the first time I saw it. But seeing it again, I like it a lot better. Really? Seeing I liked it, it a lot less. Did you? The second time? Yeah. Well, I, was, I wasn't I was impressed with it the first time. Okay. I, I liked it more the second time. And I think part of it is that I went in with very different expectations this time. Okay. Like, I loved the fourth one. I, thought, I still mm-hmm. think the fourth one is the, the high point of this whole series. But the fifth one does have some of the best set pieces of the series. There's a whole sequence in an opera house that's mm-hmm. almost Hitchcockian in its execution. Yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely uh, got pretty points to it. Yeah. Uh, at this point, it's another... Boy, we're just running into this plot a lot lately where uh, <laughs> Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt is trying to prove that there's a giant conspiracy evil group called the Syndicate uh, that has been basically setting up all the other stuff all along, and they nobody else believes them. In fact, the government, the CIA, uh, being mouthpieced by Alec Baldwin here, is trying to shut down the IMF, saying, okay, yeah, they get stuff done, but at what cost? Uh, and Ethan Hunt's trying to say, look, um, you guys don't understand how bad the situation is, but they just don't believe the syndicate They're exists. They're like, Ethan. Of course, we know the syndicate exists because Tom Cruise said it does. Yeah, and, uh, he's not going to fucking lie to he you. He has to go on the run, uh, both from his own government and from the syndicate, trying to, to, to find the proof these guys exist, to shut them down and go through a whole series of impossible missions to do so. And yes, this is, in terms of plot, much less believable than the last one was um but i hear myself saying that and i go yeah but look what a high rating you gave uh, fast and the furious <laughs> the last fast and the furious oh no movie. no we, we ain't gonna have them words now <laughs> no that was solid that was solid craftsmanship because it was about family it's about family this is, kind of this goes with a family thing too yeah but they friends they ain't family yeah that that's probably true uh you do get to see simon Pegg all but like break down in tears and hug tom cruise at one point because he just loves him so much he's really well, he's itty bitty he wanted to put him in his pocket <laughs> i did think that like going back through this there are a lot of really fun sequences though which is ultimately what you want from a film like this i mean a lot of people were talking this year about comparing this with Spectre, which you can't help but do because the plots are not dissimilar. <laughs> um, and saying this was the better film. And in the context of like a film you go to see big effect sequences that really actually work, big stunt sequences, mm-hmm. more action. Yeah, this does come out the winner of those two films. I think Spectre's a much like, I mean, it's certainly more artfully done, but like, the holes that are here 
are just part of the package that you kind of expect. Mm-hmm. With Spectre, it kind of felt like I'd been led down a road. I expected a little bit better, yeah, I think, than for, the holes that are in that for one. For lack of better words, this is of of the like high spy movies. These th- This is the, the Abrams one. <laughs> yeah, I, and I do like Spectre better. I do. I, I think it has its problems, its flaws, but I did like it better. This is... Still a really, I, I thought this is for me still a really fun movie I had a good time with. And I still hold up like as one of the better of the Mission Impossible films. Well, I mean, it's introducing Jack Donaghy as, as the head of the IMF. Dude, didn't you just want him to break into Jack Donaghy? <laughs> yeah. I just like, basically please do a Jack, that. just say a Jack Donaghy line. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Say something about a tuxedo. Yeah. Like look down, like have a scene where, where it starts off or. He, the first cut, he just goes, lemon. And then and he's at a bar and the bartender yeah, gives him a gives slice him a of lemon. lemon. And yeah. you're like, okay, that, that, that would be funny. I, That's all I needed. <laughs> but everybody comes back. Jer- poor Jeremy Renner, who keeps mm-hmm. being introduced to series as if he's going to take <laughs> yeah. over them. And then is reduced to like third, fourth banana. Yeah, the, the, the almost kid. Yeah, exactly. It's like he's being kicked out of the Avengers. He's I don't even think he's going to appear in the new Bourne film. No, I don't think and so. He was supposed to inherit that series. Yep. He was supposed to inherit Mission Impossible, and in this one, he's like, he's in it, but they've got him as sort of like not even an action guy. He's just kind of like a mouthpiece dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's like office mom. Yeah. Um, well, I, I hear that in The Martian 2, he's going to be stranded on Mars, but, but then nobody goes to get him. <laughs> yeah, right. They're like, who? What? Yeah, we're good. Wait, did you say Matt Damon's on, trapped on Mars again? Shit, no, let's go get no, oh. Jeremy Renner. Jeremy oh. Renner. Jeremy Renner. No, mm-hmm. don't remember. Let's go to Matt Damon's house. <laughs> oh, man, I hear it's poker night. Uh, and I will, I do have to point out, I really liked Rebecca Ferguson, who is a new character that will be a reoccurring character in the series. I've announced she's going to be full on in the next Mission Impossible, who is an MI6 agent undercover that you're like not really sure completely where her allegiance lies during this. But mm-hmm. man, is she good at action? And I'm sure she's going to fall in love with Ethan because Tom Cruise has it in his contract. Well, they already like kind of set it up where she's, she kind of feels like what they were trying to do with Jinx and Die Another Day, mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, she's a badass. And there's clearly an attraction there, but let's face it, she don't need no man. <laughs> no way, no how. <laughs> She's tough on her own. Uh, uh, Simon Pegg, who's given a lot more to do here than he yes. has in any of the previous films. Ving Rhames, who is really relegated to <laughs> the guy dressing. on the other end of the phone a long way away. <laughs> you know? So what's your role? Uh, I'm, I'm black. <laughs> and Sean Harris is the main bad guy who, who has been appearing in a lot of stuff this year as uh, I mean, this is one of these guys I feel like he should almost entirely play bad guys, but he was in Macbeth not playing a bad guy, playing Macduff. I swear to God, he looks like evil Christopher Guest to me. Yeah, kind of. Do you see that? Yeah, I he do now like that you say it. Christopher Guest is what he looks like. Um, <laughs> and, but I, I think he overplays it here. Mm-hmm. He's like so a feat as to be a cartoon character oh yeah no completely yeah uh which i you know considering the script they've given him i think they're overplaying it i expect more of almost a businessman well even out out of a franchise as ridiculous as this it's like hey buddy uh get some notes yeah agreed uh lots of extras on here of course audio commentary with tom cruise and the director christopher mcquarrie who is by the way coming back to direct the next one uh a a feature called lighting the fuse which looks at uh mcquarrie's attachment to the project building the stories uh, cruise Control, which every film with Tom Cruise in yeah. it has to have an extra called Cruise mm-hmm. Control, uh, which takes a look at his involvement in the filmmaking pro- process. And which, by the way, say what you will about Tom Cruise on a personal level, which I have many negative things to say about him and his 
Scientology and the way he, he's treated some of yeah, his wives. Yeah. As a professional, as an actor, he is almost peerless in his professionalism, apparently. Yeah, yeah. You know, he takes his job seriously. Yeah, and people love to work with him. They're like, wow, that guy really knows what he's doing, and he, he'll go way out of his way to help out anybody else who needs help. He's about making the project as good as it possibly well, can dude, be. Well, dude, let's get on a cruise movie. <laughs> right? Well, we might need to... You know, work our way up from there. No, no, I'm sure First we're step, fine. digital noise. Second step, Tom Cruise movie. There we go. See? Uh, third step, question mark. Fourth step, profit. There yeah. we go. I like the fourth step. Uh, another feature, heroes, dot, dot, dot. Uh, basically, in a character piece on the four primary IMF characters. Another one called Cruising Al- Altitude, which, of course, is about the pretty impressive opening sequence where Cruise really does, without CG, hang off the side of an airplane as it takes off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you know that that's all for real, they really did that it makes that scene that much more distressing to watch mm. uh mission immersible which takes a look at the underwater sequence which also was pretty badass in this film by the way cruise claims he can hold his breath for four minutes that's it that's pretty impressive come on david blaine do it uh sand theft auto which has a look at the the big vehicle ch- chases in here the motorcycle chase sequence in here is definitely worthy of note i think alone and then the missions continue where it takes a look at okay what's the future of mission impossible yada yada they don't know they so don't know they just speculate <laughs> uh, i don't know space next up is uh a definitely a, a step in a different direction from what we've talked about the re-release of the 2003 three-part documentary stalingrad which takes a look at one of the most bloody and nasty single battles ever fought in any war ever during world war ii when the germans were trying to take the russian city of stalingrad and was basically the turning point against germany yeah. in world war ii and this is told largely from the viewpoint of the germans i mean there's a bit there are bits and pieces here where they're talking to russians who survived the thing but mainly they're talking to surviving germans and letters from germans and boy uh if you ever if you if you didn't already think hitler was an asshole in which case you should go away. <laughs> uh, but just in case, you'll be absolutely sure now because even his own people, he was like, I don't care. We got to take that city that has my enemy's name on it. Right. So I don't care if hundreds of thousands of them die. They're going to stay there. Well, Stalingrad uh, itself, uh, that, that that particular encounter was kind of like a Groundhog's Day of attrition. Mm-hmm. Like it was just it was just rubbing two pieces together until they obliterated just over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, really uh, was was a, a defining moment that I think in the West we really don't think about. No. At, you know, but in, in, in Russia, it's very ingrained in their oh, minds. Oh, completely. I mean, so many people died yeah. there on both <laughs> sides. Hundreds of thousands of people died in that one city. Yeah, just <laughs> During right there. the length of this war that went on for months, this battle in the middle of World War II with the Hitler's Sixth Army that was all but decimated mm-hmm. from this thing. And it goes on to say even what happened after with the soldiers, how they were brought into internment camps afterwards, work camps. Uh, how many people? I think the, the total of like... 300,000 or something that were there, like only 6,000 survived at yeah. the very end and made it back to Germany. <laughs> yeah. Like, Jesus Christ. And that's with like about 100,000 surviving the end of the battle. Mm-hmm. Like, between there and, you know, being finally let go from Russia and back to Germany, 6,000. Yeah, throwing the fuck around. <laughs> uh, and this is there's a lot of footage from this. There's a yes. lot. Yes, there is. Boy, they had a lot of uh, camera stuff because at that point 
Germany was really into the propaganda aspect of the war, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff they filmed there. Uh, a lot, of, you know, when you watch it, you don't, you're not seeing. Yeah, they it. had higher hopes when they were filming. Yes, it. yes, they did, and this is really one of the best war documentaries I've ever seen. Well, it's extremely comprehensive, and it's kind of interesting in that. Uh, you know, this is also a forebearer of, of modern warfare as far as, uh, you know, you can't just bomb a city anymore. You've got to clear it out building by building. And yeah. that is just an amazingly, that to this day, that's what our forces have to deal with in, in whatever conflicts they're in. Yeah, it was odd that even though World War Two was kind of the first thought of as the one of the first really modern wars, this was a step back in warfare to World War One. that it was back to trench warfare. Yep. I mean, this was person to person, steel on steel. Mm-hmm. You know, going through like trying to clear out one house after another, one factory after another, uh, snipers everywhere. It was really frightening for soldiers on both sides, and not to mention all the people caught in the middle who just fucking lived there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think this this definitely captured more of the the dire situation than what was it? Uh, Enemy at the gate. Yeah, I mean, Enemy of the Gate is, is you know, a narrative film. And right. It's funny, they briefly mentioned that sniper in this, mm-hmm. you know, the, who had killed, like, 250-some men, the Russian <laughs> yeah. sniper. Uh, you know, you're like, wow, that guy is kind of badass. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you're killing Nazis. Say what you will about snipers. Hey, they were Nazis. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's like zombies. They're not even people. Yeah, exactly. Um but you know it doesn't go into depth about it. I mean that film's like a you know a slice of life thing and I liked Enemy at the Gates I mm-hmm. thought it was pretty good but this is if you want to know what this whole thing was actually what went down this is the movie to watch and it's hard to tear away from yeah yeah I mean it, it under three hours because each segment comes in at about 53 55 mm-hmm. minutes uh, it's still one of those that you just you're drawn sucked in and really can't stop watching and you already know the outcome but still yeah like, doesn't the, matter hearing it from the mouths of people who survived it I mean, watching this thing is kind of like it's like the definition of the madness of war mm-hmm. like right just given you're like you want to know how horrible war really is Stalingrad is like you know the the documented case of like here's our best case our worst case example for why war sucks yeah and why leaders who declare war are madmen <laughs> or cowards <laughs> all right next up is time out of mind with Richard Gere as a homeless guy walking around the streets of uh, I believe it was New York City uh, just trying to get his mind together. And uh, basically talking to himself a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much the movie. Yep. It's uh, written directed by Oren Mooverman, who's one of the guys who, sort of a, a mumblecore-ish type dude, uh, who wrote is written, wrote screenplays for Jesus' Son, Married Life, and I'm Not There. But he's done some films I really, really liked, like The Messenger, uh, with Woody Harrelson and Ben Foster, which was really good. Uh, and... Um, Oh, I'm trying to remember the other one. Oh, Rampart, which I also really, really liked quite a bit with uh, 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 with uh, Woody Harrelson. Great movie. A lot of people just forgot about in 2011. I sure did. Yeah, no, really good. <laughs> this is not the most interesting thing he's done. No, um, no. Uh, part of it is just that I've never really responded very strongly to Richard Gere and his weird little squinty eyes. Yeah, yeah, it's I'm feeling you. Weird little squinty eyes. Yeah, this movie just felt to me like, uh, even though I was watching it, it just nothing was sticking, and it was kind of like something you put on in the background while you're doing something else. Well, I mean, there's not much of a plot. This doesn't really... It's really kind of just experiential. It's 
like what it's like to be a guy who once his life was together, had a real good job, but disintegrated. His mind started to disintegrate, mm-hmm. and and you know depression and heavy drinking on the streets just compounded it. And now he just literally doesn't know how to function. Uh, and even when people are trying to help him, he doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, and I guess like if I was like running a shelter and I wanted to teach people about compassion, like for homeless people and say, these are not, you can't relate to them. Some of these people the same way you would right. someone else. I go, yes, this would be a great film to show them in terms of trying to tell a story. There ain't a hell of a lot going on. Here. No, no, I really don't have much to say. About it. <laughs> Brief appearances by Ben Vereen. Jenna Malone plays his daughter who has basically completely like blown him off because he's, was a real asshole as a dad but even so I had no sympathy for her you're like your dad is like psychologically damaged homeless and begging for your help and you keep like turning up your nose at him you're kind of a bitch (laughs) he didn't rape you he just was one of those dads who wasn't there enough Mm -hmm. come on yeah, this is this isn't the '80s. That's not a, a justification anymore. Yeah, Kira Sedgwick is in this briefly. Stan, Steve Buscemi is in this briefly. Jeremy Strong, all these people, they're in it very briefly because uh, it's definitely a Richard Gere performance piece. But once again, if you're not really that big of a fan of Richard Gere, <laughs> it's, it's not going to do much for you. I, I felt like how much better this would have been with an actor who could act can emote more. Yeah, I did never have gotten the appeal of Gear. No, he there's was definitely a looks guy. He, there's some movies he's in I really like. Like I thought Chicago. Wow, he did, oh, did yeah, prove yeah. he could be a song and dance man. Okay, he's good in that. But most of the stuff he's really acclaimed for, I go, yeah, he's really dull. <laughs> yes, I don't know my opinion and Joe's. Uh, next up is season two of Extant. I don't know if you actually watched this or no, not. No, because I hadn't seen season one. Okay. Uh, I had kind of raved about the first season of this and kind of an effort to, like, they were trying to save it and get a second season made because uh, nobody saw the first season. This was a Halle Berry starring piece produced by Steven Spielberg where she was an astronaut who came home from space uh, pregnant in a solo after a solo space mission oh, and space Mary. especially weird as well because she was incapable of having children oh. so they're like what and it's kind of at the same time she's got her, she does have a kid but he's a robot kid her <laughs> husband is like a roboticist who's built like the first most amazing robot like a capable feeling mm-hmm. and independent thinking that it's pretty much a kid he he built J- Haley Joe Osment pretty much okay yeah um and the kid is so adorable, you know. And then she has gives birth to this other kid, which ends up super growing into like alien Dude, hybrid. That's what thing. happens. And you're like, oh, the world is looks like the world might be coming to an end here. They it might be this might be an alien invasion, but what's going on? And this ends on a like the first season ended on a wow. I want to see what happens. That was really interesting, and all the characters that were being developed were really interesting. There were a lot of great like like interactions going on between everybody and miniature story subplots and I was like it was so wonderfully well produced Mm -hmm. uh, very high production values I was like and Halle Berry who is genuinely a great actress she just doesn't always make the best choices (laughs) is really strong in this so I was excited to get the second season Unfortunately, the second season makes some goddamn weird choices Uh, starting off kind of strong but making, once again, some weird choices where her husband, who's a main character in the whole first season, gets killed 
as it, this establishes, murdered almost immediately into the show. Uh, somebody from afar programs his car to stop on a train tracks and not let him out, God and he's killed. Uh, and her son, robot son, is taken away from her and given to the woman who was having an affair with her husband, Uh-oh. who was also a roboticist who worked with him. You're like, where's this going from here? Halle Berry shoved into an insane asylum. <laughs> uh, uh, and it introduces Jeffrey Dean Morgan, which is never a bad thing. Mm. Uh, Jeffrey Dean, who'll show up in almost anything, but always adds a level of charisma and character to yeah, whatever Yeah, he's it is. a little MSG. Yeah, I, I like him. <laughs> I still keep wishing they'll find a way to reintroduce him on Supernatural somehow. <laughs> I like that if they bring God, God should appear as the Winchester's dad. Yeah, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. absolutely. And they'll be like, dude, not cool. Not cool. <laughs> Um, well, you just see what you want to see. Yeah. Uh, but he comes in as like a, a cop, and, and here the cops are sort of more like bounty hunters in a way. They basically get sent, here's a here's something that needs attention of the police. Would you like to take this? It pays this much money. Mm-hmm. All the police are independent contractors, basically. Uh, well, not, government can't handle it. Not a great idea, if you ask me. <laughs> uh, but uh, he... Basically, he's investigating a series of strange murders, and uh, it leads him to her, who's like, oh, these are alien hybrids that are bursting out of these women's stomachs and killing them. And now oh. there's an alien hybrid army that's slowly growing. Damn. Not hybrids. even slowly, because they, they grow really <laughs> fast. <laughs> um and I don't know. It's one of those, like, you knew that you could tell there was that point in the show where, like, I mean, really enjoying it at first, but there's that point in the show you can tell they knew that, oh, shit, this is, we're not going to get another season. Mm. So suddenly the plot speeds up incredibly fast. And You mean like a hybrid? <laughs> like a hybrid. Nice. And, like, the whole last half of the show is just, like, throwing exposition at you so fast. And a lot of things that felt like if they had taken their time to get there would have felt organic and worked but Mm -hmm. in the sped up pace you're like okay that's just fucking silly (laughs) (laughs) and by the end i was like yeah just it made too many jumps of logic for me where i'm like man this show had so much promise second season nowhere near as good as the first still worth seeing if you watch the first season but at this point i just couldn't tell anybody oh yeah you missed it. You should go watch season one and two of X Ten. That's all there is, but it's great. And now I can't really because it doesn't come to the best of. It just doesn't wrap up in a way. I mean, it, watch season one and then presume that it gets in a car accident. Maybe, maybe so. Maybe so. All right. Next up is Triumph of Zivil. Oh, that's good. I didn't Nine. get to see this one. Um, I made Joe watch it. Uh, this is the 1935 Nazi propaganda film, direct, produced, edited, and co-written by uh, Lenny Le- Riefenstahl. Good old Lenny Riefenstahl. Uh, that was covered the, not, the 1934 Nazi Party Congress in Nuremberg, which had more than 700,000 Nazi supporters there, uh, with various speeches from Adolf Hitler, Rudolf Hess, Julius Stryker. Uh, and this sounds like something you go, why in the hell would I want to watch this? Historical value, people. Yeah, well, th- but that is a valid question because you go, yeah. well, you don't. Not unless you're like really, really, really into either A, World War II and the history of World War mm-hmm. II, because this was like a gigantic and effective promotion piece for mm-hmm. the Nazis. I mean, this did what exactly what it was supposed to. Uh, and in fact, so much so that uh, uh, I can't remember who it was. I want to say D.W. Griffith. Um, uh, released a whole series of films as counter to it for American mm-hmm. called Why We Fight, I believe. <laughs> you know, where he stole a lot of the techniques. That's the other thing, the reason to watch this, though, is that, honestly, this uh, 
became like started to use a lot of techniques nobody had ever really used before in in propaganda or in documentaries or anything like that with moving cameras, aerial photography, long focus le- uh, lenses, um, using music and 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 effective cinematography. I mean, really techniques to manipulate information that no one had never occurred to anybody to do before. So yeah, yeah, basically, uh, it was able to actually hard nail a uh, uh, an emotional sense or center from which the viewer should operate. Yeah. So. And in the sense of, like, history of film, okay, also, it's something you put on the shelf next to Griffith's Birth of a Nation, where you go, this is <laughs> yeah, really actually yeah. content, but... Boy, did it groundbreak a that, lot of stuff. That's 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 the exact conversation I had with a, a, a fellow film buff about like it's basically Aryan Birth of a Nation. Yeah, but you know, and uh, it, it which in its own way was the Aryan Birth of a Nation, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> super Aryan. But you know, there's the scene uh, where where. Uh, uh, Hitler outruns Jesse Owens at the Olympics. I thought that was really well done. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny if they had manipulated that in there. But I don't know. I mean, this is Synopsis putting this out. It's one of those things nobody had put out on Blu-ray yet. I mean, we're getting to that point of Blu-ray where everybody's like, okay, what's what left? Do we got? What do we got? <laughs> what's left? What, what hasn't gotten the transfer yet? And, uh, you know, I mean, talk about your stuff for completists. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say if you if you really want to study film and you really want to study the the, the impact film can have on the world, this is something to watch. If uh, you, you want to get a Hitler boner, go ahead and watch it. Um, <laughs> I hope that no one listening wants to get a Hitler boner. <sighs> Let's hope not. <laughs> um, I think they used to make Hitler French ticklers, didn't they? Well, they do yeah. now. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Thanks oh, for well, giving them that idea, Chris. On the digital noise store. <laughs> Get your Hitler ticklers. Uh, but but by and large, for even uh, casual to a semi-serious uh, film buff, it's not necessary. Yeah. Um, it comes with audio commentary by Dr. Anthony Santoro, who uh, basically made the subtitles uh, for this, uh, which have created their own bit of controversy. Uh, not quite sure why, but there you go. Um, well, uh, there's that one part where uh, Hitler said that Greedo shot first. Oh, uh, well, there you go. Yeah, see. And then there's a, a short film called Day of Freedom, which was Riefenstahl's uh, follow-up in 1935 to this that expo- that looked at German Germany's military prowess uh, more than this one, which really, I guess, more features on just this. Yeah, no, it's it's basically it's basically like when the Beatles arrive in America, like when they're on. <laughs> no, seriously, like when they're on the airstrip and they come out of the plane and like, ah, that's basically what it is. Wow. So so if you if you just like overlay she loves me yeah oh, yeah Jesus. yeah someone's going to do that now and I just don't want to even know uh, just just send it to me guys hey it's still better than our next film which is pan <laughs> yeah talk about being panned yeah, okay i'm not like, yeah yeah that was yeah. like the most one of those ones where the title is unfortunate, considering <laughs> everybody panned this. Yeah, song. you should have just called it Shit House. But they really should have panned it because it's awful. It's so it's so amazing. Okay, so I guess we should talk about what it is before we de- deconstruct it. It's a but... prequel to Peter Pan, right? Plain so and simple. That's all you really need to know. Uh, and it tries to get, uh, go off of its like high use of CG and and pretty things, except. Most of them aren't pretty, and and because it's so overused, should be taken for granted. Like I think one of the prettiest scenes in the movie is early on when they're kind of over the skies of of a war torn London. Mm-hmm. Like that was really beautifully done, and they did not know that that 
they had done such a good job. Well, the thing is, this director, Joe Wright, is well known for, like, you know, being one of those directors who, even if the subject matter is not something that lends itself to incredible visuals, like, say, Atonement or something mm-hmm. like that, he makes the film so gorgeous you can't stand it. It's yeah. Like, Jesus Christ, like, Atonement is one of the most beautifully shot films I've ever seen. I feel like here it's his chance. Like, they're like, oh, well, this guy's going to be great with like $130 million. And yeah, access it's to fantastic. All this CG. You have a reason to show anything. And not so much. CG, <laughs> not his thing. No. I, and I don't know. Maybe a lot of this was interference. I, it's just. It's just not a good script. It makes some really weird decisions along the way. Yeah. Like the, the trying to have Moulin Rouge type moments where the that was awful. characters sing like, well, there's only twice when it happens and both of them are punk songs. It smells like Teen Spirit. It smells like Teen Spirit and Blitzkrieg, and, Bop. And Blitzkrieg Bop. And you're like, what why the is this even fuck happening? Yeah. There's nothing to do with the plot. It, it's like just so random. Well, and there's you know there's tons of sea shanties, so it's not like they're they're out of material. And Hugh Jackman, God bless him, is trying oh. so hard, and it just he sticks out like a sore thumb here. He's trying to dig through a mountain of shit with a soup spoon. Yeah, he plays Blackbeard, the villain, villainous pirate here, uh, and you got Garrett Headland who has always had kind of mixed results with me. There's stuff I really liked him in and stuff where he didn't work at all. Mm-hmm. Here, I feel like he's just going, somebody tell me what I should be doing. Because he's yeah. playing Captain Hook, right. who here is a kind of anti-hero who's friends with Peter. Who's an American, yeah. as near as you can tell. As near, it's hard to tell what he's doing with his <laughs> accent. Um, it's bizarre. Who They're setting up a romantic thing between him and uh, Tiger Lily played... Uh, white at its whitewashing lead by Rooney Mara. <laughs> no, Rooney Mara. Oh, right, right. Amanda right. Seyfried plays very briefly a mermaid. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, so one of the few things that I did like was uh, Tiger Lily's headdress. Yeah. Uh, that was really beautifully done. Total rave look. Yeah. It, it was really, it was visually very striking, but then it goes back to it's visually striking in like a Betsy Johnson boutique. So yeah. it's just crazy. I don't know. It's just, and this whole thing, you're like, it's just hard to care about what's happening. There's mm-hmm. lots of moments the plot makes no sense. There's lots of those, like, just contrivances. It's just loaded yeah. with contrivances. And ultimately, the feeling at the end, how in the fuck is this a prequel to Peter Pan? Well, not only that, but it very much suffers from the, we know how this is going to fucking end up, so who cares? Like, yeah. Make it interesting. Which is the problem with so many prequels. Mm-hmm. And I, they really do try and push it into like a world where it's not all about, ah, now here's this, and now here's this. But then you're left at the end with like, okay, well, that doesn't make any sense then. Yeah. What, what A lot of stuff here, you're like, how did it get there? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, don't want a second film, mind you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a Pan is just a giant, like, big expensive train wreck of a release that was poorly thought out in a, a studio mentality that still thinks that prequels of branded properties are the greatest thing ever. Right. And they need to stop. <laughs> they really do. And this is proof positive. Yep. Uh, our anti-pick of the week. <laughs> uh, next up is Queen of Earth. Now, I was excited to see this because I'm a huge Mad Men fan. Mm-hmm. And of Mad Men, I think probably the best actor on that whole thing is Elizabeth Moss. Oh, yeah. Who is just so good on that show. And here, it's the Elizabeth Moss show. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Queen of Earth is a very arty, 
modern day version of Repulsion, basically by Polanski. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have you ever seen that? No. Okay, you should. It's, okay, it, it's very formative. Uh, but of a woman who is just disintegrating psychologically, yes. and she has been left by her. I, I guess I think it was just her boyfriend. Yeah, yeah, longtime boyfriend, and her right after her father, who was uh, like her mentor, uh, you know, a very famous artist died and as clear as this goes on that she didn't have any identity outside of her relationship between her boyfriend and and her and the relationship with her father yeah that was her identity and now she doesn't know who she is or how to get along and the one tie to real life she has remaining in her life is her friend that she grew up with uh uh Ginny, played by Catherine Waterston, who you might remember from her very uh acclaimed on Mr. Skin and similar sites seen on <laughs> Inherent Vice from last year. Mm. She took off her clothes at length. Uh although she is she's been in a bunch of stuff recently and actually is is a lo- lot of big profile stuff coming up soon. So proving herself to be one of the more interesting actresses working right now, although she's not given but so much to do here other no. than just look concerned. Yeah, I don't know. It was very annoying because everybody had a fucking problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody was kind of fucked up, but everybody else is fucked up in a normal way. Mm-hmm. And Moss is so fucked up that it's... And the movie wants to keep you very much in the dark with what's wrong with her. Yes, yeah. And, and I think that's the biggest problem. No, that, that was very annoying to me. That, like, it really wants it to be, like... Like, you just don't know what her motivation is. Right. Like, she's so unlikable. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Because I was like, well, so is this chemical? Is this existential? Like, you know, yeah. what? You, what is the source of this shit? You can't really put it together at all till close to the end mm-hmm. of what's actually going on with this woman. And it's not, there's no big plot reveal or anything. No. It's just, that's the thing. It's not, it's not like a... a you know, like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. Or there's a twist. Oh, this is why she's so fucked up. It's just character stuff that really should have been in the first act. Yeah. Especially if you want us to feel any sympathy for this girl. But it wants to create almost a horror atmosphere as you don't know how deep the depths of this girl woman's madness is. And the way this film does succeed is Amos's performance, Mm -hmm. which is genuinely just batshit crazy and scary to watch. Yeah, like I might have dated you at some point. <laughs> yeah, I know. I kind of thought <laughs> that, too. Um, she is disturbing in this movie. Yeah, you're right, though. They should have set it up in the first third, and then the middle third, they should have had her training, and then in the last third, she beats Jesse Owens in the Olympics. Or, or uh, Darth Vader. And Darth Vader in the Olympics. Yeah, she goes to Dagobah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what movie we were picturing, but it wasn't this one, clearly. Uh, and Patrick Fugit has a role as the next-door neighbor who's kind of having a sex fling with uh, Catherine Watterson, who mm-hmm. is really freaking out Elizabeth Moss, because she just doesn't want anyone else around but her and Catherine. Yeah. And you can't blame Catherine for not wanting that, because Elizabeth Moss just treats her like shit <laughs> She does, and she's emotionally a vampire. <laughs> yeah, completely. Uh, yeah, she's so fucked up. The, you, you've got to watch this movie with compassion for the mentally ill to get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. But you, but you're not going to have any compassion for who she is as a person. Right. I'm not sure you're really supposed to. She is a mess that's a product of her environment, which is a, as P- F- Fugit keeps pointing out, a spoiled little rich brat, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, who has no idea how to relate to people. Well, what and, are you going to do with royalty? And then when she's put in a position where she, has to suddenly be act like a regular person. She goes mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I 
this is so worth watching for her performance. Really wish somebody else had taken a look at the script and saw what was wrong. Yeah, with it. yeah, it would it would have done wonders. Uh, next up is the all but forgettable heist. Oh my god! <laughs> and what's a shame about this is it starts. With a promising premise. Kind of, yeah. I really like the idea here. I mean, you've got Robert De Niro playing the the Francis the Pope Silva, who's a, which is a very late, very common direct-to-DVD and Blu-ray Robert De Niro role to play. Mm-hmm. You know, like, who can we get? De Niro or Pacino? I don't know. Flip a coin. They'll Pacino's do doing it. those weird character pieces. <laughs> get De Niro. Um, and, you know, he's lost touch with humanity and with his own daughter even which we don't really doesn't really become a major plot element till late in the film uh with kate bosworth in a small role but we see jeffrey dean morton morgan as a guy's worked for de niro for a long time in this casino that he owns and his daughter is needs i, th- I think it was a kidney transplant i'm not yes. even sure uh but she's dying in this hospital and the, he doesn't have any more money to pay for stuff they've already done and she's gonna die unless he can get the money he comes begging to de niro for it de niro basically hasn't beat up and fired for it <laughs> uh and he goes he had been approached already by uh Drax the dave, destroyer yeah dave bautista who's like look i'm gonna rip this guy off but i need your help to do it you know you've been here forever you know this casino so he goes back to him and says all right let's do this thing uh and they set him up as uh or not uh batista but dean jeffrey dean morgan is a very strange anti-hero of a mm-hmm. character but it is an intriguing premise as they pull the heist it goes wrong but they escape to a bus where where the film goes, oh, speed was popular. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like this relationship with, between these guys and all these people on the bus. And, you know, the, immediately the cops are on them and are following them. And they're like, well, what do we do to get out of this? And what makes this scenario actually interesting is that the mob guys, right, Rob De Niro, want to get them too, can't involve doesn't want the police there doesn't want them involved at all because the money they stole was specifically only money that they were laundering yeah. for the bigger mobs <laughs> yeah, for like the that, triad that, or something yeah that money could be traced and they would be in trouble so they don't the, everybody's in a tough position here <laughs> <laughs> you know and you've got uh uh gina carano as basically the police officer who's most communicating with jeffrey dean morgan mm-hmm. over this whole thing who well, once again deserves better than this carano i always thought is is got a bit bright future ahead of her as an actress, action movie actress, especially. And I, and this is a minor step. The thing about this film is for the first half of it, it's, I thought it was actually pretty good. I I, I thought it wasn't awful. Yeah. It, it, it's just that, that setup that, okay, they're on the run and the bad guys want, uh, don't want the cops involved. The cops are afraid of public perception and Mm -hmm. can't just, shoot this bus <laughs> right that's that's the conceit of why they can't take it by force yeah um and uh the the heroes aren't really heroes they're kind of you got jeffrey dean morgan is doing this for his daughter but he's keeping the you know uh, uh dave batista who's just a mad dog from just yeah. randomly killing people and i think there's some interesting stuff going on there what where it all falls apart is when they get to the point that the writers decided this needed a bunch of twists yeah and then they're just they make no sense. There is a twist in here involving a pregnant woman on a bus. When you go back and you look on it, you're like, how in the hell would they even know that they got on that bus in the first place? Mm. There's no way they could have known. This twist makes no sense at all. I, I found it really sad because in theory, I like uh, Dave Batista, mm-hmm. And so like, I think with Drax, that was a really good move, but this makes me think is Drax the extent of his, his uh, acting ability. 
I don't know. It's a little early in his career to say for sure. It is, but but, but the roles like this are not going to help him. I mean, let's face with Drax, he was playing a guy who was like largely emotionless except for anger, right? And couldn't understand how people speak in allegory. Yes, <laughs> and you know he didn't understand metaphor, so it was like. Not the most complex role in the world. But it's something that that, that uh, a starter in it could definitely cut their teeth on. Yeah. This, I felt like there needed to be a little bit more to him. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, because so, he just, they just turned him into like the... Killbot. Yeah, like, Killbot 2000. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas Carano actually thought brought a lot of charisma to this mm-hmm. and still has, yeah. shows a lot of promise of moving on and getting... She gets better in everything I see her in as an actress. And here she's good in... She, they just don't give her a hell of a lot to do. No. Uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is one of those guys. He's so... He can be... You can set his switch to... Oh, the most likable charisma of charismatic <laughs> yeah. guy in the world. We just love him. He's cuddly or the most vicious, horrible, evil villain of yeah, the world. Yeah, he, he's and programmable. He's easily programmable. He's great at both. And here they've got him as so lovable, you forget the fact that he just took a bus full of hostages. <laughs> <laughs> Save for that. Uh, yeah, Heist is... It, it's a, a, it was a mess that started off really promising and then turns into an embarrassing shortage of, of, of just common sense in writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the ending just pissed me off. I was like, "You're you're fucking kidding me! You're so lazy!" <laughs> Holy shit, that was lazy. Anyway, let's move on to to the pick of the week. No, no, me. no. Uh, Dragon Blade, oh, the yeah. latest Jackie Chan flick. Uh, that is his. All right, first off, let me just say this: Jackie Chan, please stop trying to make films that are meaningful and have something important to say. Please just stop. You want him to focus on a singing career? No. I want him to focus on just making goofy kung fu movies where people get beat up. Goofy, fun movies. The biggest problem with Dragon Blade is he wants it to be more important than it's capable of being. Mm -hmm. Uh, And part of that is just how weirdly anachronistic it is to see John Cusack and Adrian Brody. See, you didn't get it. This was the (laughs) Shanghai Night prequel. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, That could very well be. Um, <laughs> it's, it was funny cause I posted something on here. It's like some on my Facebook. I was like, as I was watching this, it's hard to believe some exec somewhere sat down and went, I think what audiences are really waiting to see is a fight between Jackie Chan and John Cusack. Yeah. For the first time on film together. <laughs> and then later a fight between him and Adrian Brody where you're like, nobody wanted to see that. Nope. Nobody. <laughs> That's the weirdest conceit ever that anybody <laughs> would think that was a good idea. Um, and Kuzak is a, one of those guys that when he's miscast, he's like obscenely miscast. Yeah. Beautifully miscast. And, and this is one of the like top examples ever of like, holy shit, miscasting. Brody though, I thought worked perfectly because he's, <laughs> He's just a jackass. Yeah, uh, he plays that type of role a lot. Yeah. Um, here it's uh, Western China, 50 BC on the Silk Road. Uh, Jackie Chan and his his group are called the Protection Squad that are all about peace. They want to stop battles and keep people from fighting on the Silk Road. He's just trying to keep the chaos at a minimum. Unfortunately, he gets uh, framed, he and his group, somehow. Nothing is ever really made of this. But okay, they get framed, they get sent to this basic work camp that's building the city uh, called the Goose Gate, a ruined fortress. They're rebuilding it, which is a major stop, commerce stop on the Silk Road. It's a place they send people to go work till they die. Mm-hmm. In a scene that we never get to see, 
uh, suddenly he basically becomes leader of the whole thing and everybody loves him. Oh, it, it basically, <laughs> when the shit hits the fan, he's the one who's rushing towards the turds. Yeah, and but that's the whole thing goes in there and everyone's like, oh, we're all going to fight and everybody's 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 enemy. And then suddenly everybody is com- in who lives there is completely a good guy and all 100% Jackie behind yeah, Jackie Chan. He and spreads like, his Jackie what dust. What happened to the people who were running this five minutes ago? <laughs> they just disappeared. Well, they're still there, you know, just, I, just kind it, of waiting yeah. to get him tea. Well, everything gets shook up when uh, John Cusack and his group of lost Romans show up and uh, basically show up in- inexplicably once again going, nope, we got to fight. We're going to fight. Mm, only, we have to. Only explainable for so we could get a John Cusack, Jackie Chan fight, which once again, are my earlier comments. <laughs> um, and then there's a sandstorm coming and they're all like, oh, why don't you just come in? If you're just hungry and need water, all you had to do was ask. Which, yeah, we would have done that. Yeah, which was indeed approached before the fight began. So no real clarity on why that all that had to happen. <laughs> but of course, Kusak and Chan become the best of buddies. They're they best. Do. It's like watching those videos where you see a kitten and a puppy sleeping together happily. It really you know? is. Like all cuddled up in each other's arms. It's adorable. <laughs> Except makes no sense, once again, in the context of this. Uh, and it Turns out Adrian Brody... All right, so this is where it gets a little confusing. I didn't really even completely understand it. Adrian Brody... Let's see. Killed a guy... And his like in line for the throne, and tried to kill the son of the guy who would have been next in line for the throne. But Chan, or I'm sorry, um, Kuzak, who was in charge of protecting said son, left the city with his troop, trying to protect this child that they still have with them, who's a little blind kid. Who the movie? Boy, the movie is sure mean to the Roman main characters in this film. I mean, it's just goddamn sadistic to these characters. Well, because they're barbarians like, compared oh, to the white, Chinese. White people, what are you going to do? Seriously, though. <laughs> I mean, they, they do have a point. And Adrian Brody apparently is like still on the road to find this kid, as well as has in wants to take over the city, and yada yada leads to lots of fightings and betrayals and a lot of stuff that just didn't make a whit of sense. No, it was it was just kind of de facto. Oh, this is a Chinese movie, so this is what's going to happen. But even on, you know, I know that context, and even for that, this was like mind-bogglingly stupid, like and what they didn't bother to explain, and huge jumps in like emotional logic. Well, and- one of the things that I found uh, quite noticeable is that whenever they were uh, shooting scenes that were western centric mm-hmm. uh, even like uh, Jackie and John are on the wall at night and they're having an interaction and shots were held too long or shots were cut too short I think it's because they just didn't quite know how to edit for English yeah maybe so I mean I'm sure there's a different cut of this for China oh yeah there's gotta be mm-hmm. there always is for this sort of thing and maybe that's what we're missing here is that some of these scenes were you know Scenes that they, like you said, they didn't know how to edit for English, and so you end up with a film with a lot of contextual holes in it. Yep. Like I feel like we just missed a whole bunch of stuff that was like valid to the story. Yeah, when Adrian Brody beat uh, Hitler uh, in the Olympics. <laughs> Even so, it was just a, we really. Damn it, we're going back to Hitler at the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't that with this. We're like watching Jackie Chan fight. 
but we're not watching Jackie Chan fight. We're watching pretty standard fights with Jackie Chan in them, as opposed to the stuff that Chan's actually good at. Yeah. It felt like the kind of mistakes they made early in Chan's career, where they tried to sell him as like a Bruce Lee type, when he wasn't. Right. He was a Jackie Chan type. That's his style. It's like, don't make Jackie Chan fight like somebody else. Well, uh, it's pretty consistent that when Jackie does a historical piece, it's awful. Yeah. Like, uh, what was it, Dragons of he- or Generals of Heaven and Earth? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, Drunken Masters are good. Well, no, but I, what I mean is like, oh, like, like, big... a, like antiquities, like war movies. Oh, like, okay. He's just, it just Not doesn't so work. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is when he takes himself seriously, that, like his film, his film project too seriously, it, He's good at comedy. Mm-hmm. He's good at comedy action. He's not great at drama. Right. He never has been, sadly. I wish he was. I, the man is a legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, full props to everything that he has achieved in his career, but drama just isn't and never will be his thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's his Leonardo DiCaprio Oscar. Yeah. Uh, I think that this was a mess. Yeah. Yeah, Dragon. it was a spectacle. It, 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 you know, it's obviously had a huge production budget. Mm-hmm. Like oh, production yeah. value is high on this thing, and I think part of the reason this even got made is because everyone involved is like, there's lots of giant, only half ruined temples sitting around the deserts in China yeah. that we can film in that'll look amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, know? the rent's cheap. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, Dragon Blade. Mm, yeah, even if you're a big Jackie Chan fan, I'd say skip it. And definitely if you're a big John Cusack fan, because what the fuck? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is not high fidelity, too. No, and they're not going to be kind to him. No. You know, to his credit, he has done action before where it was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, gross Point Blank. Yeah, yeah. Which was, is fucking phenomenal. It made me it, fall in love with him it, all but over. But it was action comedy. Mm-hmm. Maybe if Chan had made this movie and made it an action historical comedy, mm-hmm. it could have worked. Could have, but it will never know. So every time we're looking at Cusack in that fucking fan helmet, I'm just like, stop, <laughs> stop. That's not right. Or when he'd put it, put the headband on, like, you're not Ryu no. from Street Fighter. Well, that brings us to the end of the show and our giveaway. Take it, take it, take it. Here you go, take it. And our giveaway this week is the brand new Blu-ray double pack set of Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2. What you gonna do? What you gonna do? I'm going to give it away to somebody because I don't want it, but I know lots of other people do. Yeah. yeah. All right. So here's the point where I try and convince you that you're wrong for liking these movies, even though I know no amount of convincing will do that because people just love the shit out of it. They're like, oh, no, Michael Bay did a lot of shitty movies. True. But you got to hand it to Bad Boys and Bad Boys, too. No, I don't. (laughs) I, I will hand it to The Rock. For sure. Mm-hmm. And I even like, I really like The Island. I realize I'm in the minority there, but I think that's because people went in expecting a big, dumb Michael Bay film and it actually has some thoughtful moments mm-hmm. in it. <laughs> I actually yeah. really like that one. Bad Boys and Bad Boys. T- All right. We'll just go into this. Bad Boys is a holdover from the 80s buddy cop action movie. It's like the last gasp of that genre <laughs> uh, of the buddy cop action comedy. And it's not very good. Well, see, no, see the dynamic because they're just wildly different characters. Will Smith is is a young trust fund, uh, strong black man Mike who Lowry. plays by his own rules, and Martin Lawrence is married. So yeah. you see, like, they're just worlds apart. Yeah, I mean, it's such a 
Yeah, I mean, like it's it's an odd couple dynamic in its own. It's an action couple, odd odd couple where action movie odd couple where uh, Will Smith is the guy who's like yeah, like you said, fast and loose and doesn't really care and parties, and and Martin Lawrence is the guy who's like always worried about everything and because <laughs> he's got bills to pay, and he's got bills to, to pay, feed. kids to feed, and he doesn't isn't able to dress in expensive suits and drive awesome cars. Um, <laughs> and they both work for the Miami Police Department. Uh, basically, a hundred million dollars of heroin that had been seized from a previous bust they had pulled off to great acclaim is stolen from a secure police vault. Uh, this, of course, leads to the inevitable sequence where their police captain, um, played by Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants, uh, yells at them. And uh, what are you doing? How much did you break today? Yeah, exactly. And says, "You got to find these guys. You have this much time to find them." And then they were like, "Oh yeah." And so uh, one of Will Smith's uh, like fuck buddies, who's a, a call girl <laughs> gets murdered uh when she goes she gets called out to one of those deals you can't pass out pass up and she talks her roommate played by tia leone uh to come with her who, who's like look we won't even have to do anything really you, I, I promise Not I don't even know where stuff. she even comes yeah. from yeah, we were like where would you you were just lying to this woman she is gonna get <laughs> you're bringing her to get raped mm-hmm. is what you're doing and i like watching this you're baffled going yeah, for ten thousand dollars um and Tia sees them kill her, and so she has to go on the run, and she ends up being like, like, handcuffed to the cops, both literally and figuratively, as they're protecting her and trying to get the information out of her to lead to the bust. And uh, there's a whole really, really irritating and silly thing where Martin Lawrence has to pretend that he's Will Smith mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yep, and it's it's so lame and not funny. I mean, I. That's my opinion. Obviously, there's a lot of people out there who differ, but I can tell you that I remember watching this the first time and going, yeah, it's okay. And watching it the second time, barely getting through it. <laughs> <laughs> like, just glazing over, going, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, on, on the rewatch of these, I just uh, thought to myself, oh, right, no, I see why this was popular. Well, the thing is, Bad Boys 2, at least you can more see why it was popular. Mm-hmm. Bad Boys 2, which came out, uh, geez, let's see, the first one was 95, and Bad Boys 2 is 2003, reunites Martin Lawrence and Will Smith with a new adventure, and very much is the film that kind of, in a way, marks the you know the defining shot across the bow for the Michael Bay we know now mm-hmm. the, his whole style the type of action scenes he shoots I mean this is a much higher budgeted film than the first one yes and it shows in what are admittedly a series of pretty impressive action sequences and that was the big selling point for this film because you go back and you watch it the second time you go well this dialogue's almost as bad as the stuff in the first movie <laughs> like the character p- set pieces the comedy. None of it's really very good. So many obvious things, a certain degree of homophobia. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Martin Lawrence accidentally taking ecstasy and being wildly unfunny. Yeah. Because um, the plot is trying to chase down guys who are putting ecstasy in Miami. All that being said, the last act of this film, uh, which is the film's almost four acts, really. It's a long movie mm-hmm. where they actually go, fuck it, we're invading Cuba, <laughs> is a pretty badass uh, like and brutal, like brutally violent action sequence. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, Michael Bay when he when he gets action right, he gets it right. Well, it's basically laying groundwork for the Ninja Turtles movie. That- <laughs> Could be, but uh, most of the big scenes in here, like the car chase scene, which is admitted was at the time one of the most impressive car chases on film. Mm-hmm. 
Not anymore. No. And not, now it not, just... Not even close. Yeah, you watch this and you're like, yeah, almost every Fast and the Furious film did better than this did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, like, a lot of the action in this that was very impressive at the time, that was definitely a shot across the bow for the upgrade in quality of movie action scenes, big big blockbuster movie action scenes, now seems a little dated. Yes. You know? Much like uh, Martin Lawrence's uh, vests. His vest? Yeah, the the vests that he would wear, like, more oh, than the yeah. first one where it's just like, hey, fella, that vest is too big for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's lots of just weird little uncomfortable moments in this, one of which is seeing Michael Shannon as, like, a KKK guy <laughs> who yeah. is given a few moments where he's genuinely got the possibility to be really funny, mm-hmm. and then his all his lines and everything are just stomped over by Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, yep. and you're like, wow. If only we knew how much more talented, knew then how much more talented Michael Shannon is than either Will Smith or Martin Lawrence. Maybe they could have done something more interesting with him. Uh, Gabriel Union plays uh, Martin Lawrence's uh, uh, sister, who is in the big conceit here is she's secretly having a romance with Will Smith, and both of them know that Martin Lawrence isn't going to approve, and yada yada. And she really is fucking gorgeous. She's so hot. She's just such a knockout. Yeah. It's ridiculous. But she's also the dumbest secret agent ever. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> she she's working for I think the DEA or something, yes. and she's undercover in the stupidest fucking most like throwaway like. Nobody would ever allow an agent to go undercover in these circumstances. Yeah, as a, as a money launderer who who looks like a real estate agent. I mean, at the very least, I'll hand them that. First off, Henry Rollins is briefly in this. Was yes, always which a was plus cute for me. I love when he plays a cop. <laughs> uh, and the guy who's the main villain, uh, Jordy Molia, I believe is his name, is got a hell of a lot more charisma and like fun to watch as a villain than the villain from the first film. Well, it's mostly because of his eyes. But yeah. the villain in the first film was Chicky Cario, so... Well, I mean, he's a... The villain in the first one film is, no question, a, a, a better actor, right? Yes. But the script form was not... No, existent. it was crap. He was given nothing to do. Here, this guy chews up every available piece of scenery <laughs> and belongs in a bad boys film. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, it's like uh, Chewy Cari looked like he was expecting this was one of the more intense, serious French thrillers that he you usually see him You're right, right. Love <laughs> Nikita too. Yeah. Trouble in Paradise. Uh, here, no, not so much. Uh, yeah, I mean, these films are messes, but I know you guys love them. I know so you do. have at it. Have at them. This is actually a pretty nice 2-4 with one slipcover set mm-hmm. of both movies with all the bonus features and everything. And here's how you can win it. Take it away, Joe. Um, ooh, I'm stumped on this one. Uh title of the next martin lawrence uh will smith buddy cop movie that b- is not bad boys that is not bad boys unless it's bad boys three colon something. yeah 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 uh, death in paradise that's a good one yeah uh, <laughs> give us one make us laugh and the winner will be sent this double blu-ray set and i pity you <laughs> <laughs> i know that people love it i can't get it. it's like i feel like most people love it nostalgically and right. I, I get it I, I have movies I feel that way about that I am incapable of defending in a rational sense. <laughs> I just like, I don't know. Like Remo Williams is one of those. Oh, I'm like, oh, yeah. I love that movie. And I know it's a piece of shit. And <laughs> I don't care. It's I utterly detestable. It. But yeah. Joel Gray is Asian. Yeah. I know it's so detestable. <laughs> but yeah, and, and like a really perverted, weird, drunk Asian <laughs> master guy. But uh, yeah, okay. Fair enough. Uh, well, anyway, that brings us to the end of this week's Digital Noise, Joe. Once again, thank you so much for doing this and everything that you do for the site. Hey, once again, 
Cool. We'll be seeing you more on uh, some of the theatrical reviews. Soon, yeah, right? yeah. I'm going to be coming back with a vengeance. Well, of course, like that's presuming we get any screenings anytime soon. It's, yeah, it's it, been a dry season. It's the dead zone now. It's January. But we will be doing uh, live casts of the Golden Globes and the Oscars, assuming I can figure out how to make it work. Uh, so hopefully you can join us for that. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to get proper drunk first. Yeah, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> or during. <laughs> um so uh, next week should be Richard and Marco again. Please tune in for that one as well. In the meantime, no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Or some of them, you know. A, few, a bit. Depends on the week. A bit. Sometimes I'm tired. Look, I got things to do. 